and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. We are, at the moment, in the midst of award season, with the Gramophone Awards last month and our very own Presto Awards currently being deliberated upon by our awards committee. A fine time, then, to cast a historical eye on what became perhaps the most notorious award of the 20th century, the Stalin Prize, which was inaugurated in 1941 in the Soviet Union to reward a wide variety of artistic and scientific disciplines, but would later be caught up in the political and cultural maelstrom that was post-war Soviet Union. The Music Prize would eventually be awarded to some legendary compositions by some well-known composers like Shostakovich and Prokofiev, and we will be discussing their connection to the prize, as well as that of some of lesser-known Soviet composers like Dmitry Kabalevsky and Mitchell Weinberg on the show. My guide is someone who somewhat modestly describes herself on social media as Miss Russian Music, <laughs> possibly due to the fact that not even the most generous character limit would be sufficient to, to display her full credentials, being, as they are, Professor of Music History at Cambridge University, Director of Studies at Music in Clare College, Cambridge, Professor of Music at Gresham College, and author of a wide variety of books on Russian music, most pertinently, Stalin's Music Prize, Soviet Culture and Politics. Welcome to the show, Professor Marina Frolova-Walker. Hello. <clears throat> Hello, Paul, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, yes, I laughed when you said Miss Russian Music. I didn't know anyone would notice. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is a joke, but uh, I'm, I'm usually pigeonholed as somebody who only knows about Russian music, and that's why, why I described myself in this way. The winners of the first prize, awarded in 1941, included Dmitry Shostakovich, Aram Khachaturian, and Nikolai Miaskovsky. Marina, can you give us a brief overview of how the Stalin Prize functioned on this first year? Why was it set up? Who decided who won? And what was the prize money and prestige of winning? Yes, well, I guess uh, they always wanted to create a prize which would be like the Nobel Prize, yeah, kind of parallel to the Nobel Prize and very prestigious. So at first, the idea was that the Stalin Prize would be very, very exclusive and only 10 works uh, in, in all the arts would get it every year. And it would be awarded to works rather than artists, yeah, so not necessarily lifetime achievement. Uh, and I think the reason for that was the, because the, the Soviet state and the Soviet government wanted to encourage the Soviet intelligentsia to so collaborate with them, yeah, to create the canon of these works that everyone could imitate and reward them for this participation, for this collaboration, yeah, to really create the Soviet elite. That, that's the moment you know, when, when you receive a Stalin Prize first class and it's just you, it's not a team, it's not divided between anyone. It's 100,000 rubles, um, and that would allow you at that time to buy six automobiles, you know, and you'll still have some spare change left. So it's a, a fantastical amount of money for an ordinary person, something that they would, could, cannot possibly dream of. And who decided? Well, they created the Stalin Prize Committee and originally they brought together 40 people who were the cultural elite, you know, it included Mikhail Sholokhov, for example, the writer who, as you know, wrote, um, uh, won the Nobel Prize for his novel. Uh, Sholokhov never actually turned up, but <laughs> the, the other <laughs> film directors and writers and composers were also all very well known. And uh, they all took these decisions together, but then very soon they found out that their decisions were not the final ones. Yeah, so eventually they went through several bureaucratic stages up to the Politburo itself and Stalin himself. So Stalin still looked at the final list, but that doesn't mean that he always took uh, all the decisions. Would it be right to call Nikolai Mierskovsky one of the first winners, a father figure, both in Soviet composition and on the committee? Well, yeah, maybe not so much a father figure because he was not the kind to procreate, you know. He was a kind <laughs> of an uncle figure or something, something like that. But certainly somebody very respected, uh, a, a professor of the conservatoire, um, an expert, a, a, a person who knew everything, you know, read every single score, was uh, able to make decisions very fast and basically, you know, was, was extremely dependable as an expert for the committee. And he was, of course, the professor for almost all Soviet composers. They all came through through his school. Uh, so he was an extremely respected. Uh, Including Shostakovich himself. 
Well, Shostakovich uh, didn't quite study with him, yeah, because he was at, in 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 Leningrad rather than Moscow. Uh, but he was a rival, I suppose. Became a rival eventually, a rival composition professor. Mm. Uh, could you introduce Miaskovsky's 21st Symphony, which won the prize in 1941? Yes, very strange win that is, yeah, because that's the first you know, piece that received 100,000 rubles. Uh, it was a 20-minute uh, one-movement symphony, um, which was written actually for the 50th anniversary of the Chicago, Chicago Symphony, and that created a little bit of consternation when it was brought to the attention <laughs> of the committee. Um, that tells you that Miaskovsky actually had some international yeah, and his symphonies were regularly played during the 20s and 30s uh, abroad as well. Uh, and it's it's an elegy. Yeah, it actually has a lot of sense of pain in it. And you would wonder, you know, how does it all go with socialist reason at all? Yeah, and they were they were slightly worried about the ending, whether there was a ray, a ray of light or not uh, at the end. Um, but uh, you know, it somehow reflects the, the time and the uh, frame of mind of of Soviet people at that time very well. I I, I want to quote the words of my teacher, uh, Ekaterina Mihalna Tsaryovo, to whom this book is dedicated, because when she introduced us as teenagers to the symphony, she said, and when the Allegro starts after this very, very painful introduction, it's like he is going to work, you know, <laughs> dutifully going to work. And that Miskowski writes so many themes like that, that like really present this, you know, despite all the uh, awful things that are happening, you know, I'm going to take my briefcase and go to work. And this sense uh, of kind of duty, duty and, and resignation. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's a beautiful symphony and there was certainly a right to give it a prize. Well, let's have an excerpt then. So this is Miaskovsky's 21st sym symphony uh, performed by the State Academic Symphony Orchestra of Russia conducted by Yevgeny Svetlanov. <laughs> Why do you feel Miaskovsky's music is somewhat neglected these days? As you said, he was very popular in the 20s and 30s. Yes, uh, well, I think it's probably all kind of daunting to to think that that he wrote 27 symphonies. Yeah, nobody can go through through that much music. And I think the way to bring him back is really to discard most of them and concentrate on the best ones. Uh, and I, I heard Vladimir Yurovsky played the sixth, uh, which is which is quite extraordinary symphony. The problem with it is too long, you know, <laughs> with the benefit <laughs> from some cuts. But it is a great symphony. But there are other ones, like number 13, which is striking, you know. Uh, he, he was scared of, of getting it performed in the Soviet Union because it was so incredibly depress depressive, you know, uh, and very dissonant as well. So, so number 13, number 27, very beautiful, you know, 21. So I think if we, if we get, you know, four or five symphonies together and do a kind of Moskowski festival, I, th I think people will, will start loving him more. <laughs> Perhaps the qualities in his music were very appealing in the 20s and 30s, which were periods of political unease. Uh, yes, you know, he, he was uh, kind of had a double style, really. One style was very easy and uh, and melodic. It's like the Fifth Symphony, you know, it's connected to Glazunov. Um, and that had no problem. But he had this, this other much more abrasive and extremely sort of depressed music. Gl very gloomy music came out. It's kind of a Tchaikovsky, but much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, alongside Miaskovsky in 1941, the Armenian Aram Khachaturian also won, although only a second-class prize for his violin concerto. What was the influence of folkish elements on Khachaturian's musical style? Yes, well, Khachaturian, uh, he studied in Moscow um, and he very much uh, absorbed this Russian Orientalist school. Uh, 
And he decided to fashion himself, I think, from the start as this kind of nationalist composer of Armenian music, although I think his background is slightly more complicated. He, he was born in Tbilisi and so on. Uh, and when you look closely at his music, yeah, there are occasionally some folk songs in it, but most, most of the material he invents himself. And to say that this is definitely Armenian, you know, it's not possible <laughs> to say that. And some of the idioms that he uses are just more generally Russian Oriental. Uh, some of the, uh, the idioms he uses are Spanish. Yeah, because Spanish is also this kind of Orientalist style. And he was very influenced, especially in his piano music by Albenes and Granadas. Um, and you can hear it. Yeah, so it's it's kind of... But it went with the image of him as this hot, temperamental Armenian, you know. And he was pigeonholed forever in this style. And eventually, in 1947, I think, he decided to break out and wrote his third symphony. And that... that ended very badly for him because he was denounced as a formalist. So, and he was traumatized by this for, 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 for the rest of his life. So he could never escape yeah, this, um, uh, this, this pigeonhole in which he essentially you know, put himself, but then uh, these limitations were, were the end. <laughs> well, let's have an excerpt. This is the R.M. Kashaturian's Violin Concerto performed by David Oistrak, the Philharmonia Orchestra and conducted by A.R.M. Kashaturian. importance was placed on making sure the other Soviet socialist republics, apart from Russia, were represented in the Stalin Prize? Oh yes, that was in extremely important. That's what completely messed up uh, all the, the results in the first year because uh, the Stalin Prize Committee had their own ideas of who they wanted to award. Uh, but the Politburo uh, made it, actually made, made up the second class prize, which they would give to the composers from national republics. And this is why Kachitrian, by the way, was, was moved to the second class. Um, because originally, I think they, they wanted to give him the same, same as to everyone else. But uh, yeah, so it, in this first year, it was very, very uh, obvious that they gave a Georgian composer second class prize, an Armenian, uh, an Ukrainian, Belarusian, yeah, um, and uh, it, it was just kind of very, very obvious uh, and specific. Uh, so uh, it was very important to encourage various republics. At, at later stage, yeah, when the Baltic republics uh, join yeah, the Soviet Union, intelligentsia there needs to be rewarded also for their cooperation. So they get quite a lot of prizes as well. So at, at every stage, it was a very important political point. I suppose if one was around these days, one would call it diversity. Well, yeah, yeah well, the, you know, <laughs> national, the na national policies of, um, of, of, of Stalin were, uh, were interesting. It, it, was, it was his great pride. He was a specialist in nationalism. This is what his, <laughs> was his main, you know, from 1913, you know, he wrote his first article. And to some extent, you can say that they were successful, yeah, uh, because, uh, you know, the country stayed together. Uh, until 1991, and there was not very much conflict until then. And they were allowed to develop their languages up to a point. There was not so much of forced Russification. I mean, there were periods when these languages were suppressed, but not all the time. So even though they all had to sort of do the Western things, you know, they had to have an opera in Kazakhstan and an opera in Tajikistan and so on. But nevertheless, there was some sense that, uh, that they were all all modernizing and developing culturally. Uh, so, you know, it's, you, you can't quite, uh, quite say that it was a failure. One of the more interesting but still lesser known composers of this period was Dmitry Kabalevsky. Could you give us a brief introduction to this composer and his second string quartet, which won the Stalin Prize in 1946? 
Yes, Kabalevsky is a is a very good composer. He was very very talented. Uh, he had a lot of early success. He was quite a, a lot of success in the West because the export agency in the Soviet Union managed to export some of his piano pieces. Yeah, and they, they became <laughs> the pieces that everyone plays when they're children. Yeah, was that a source of foreign currency? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm sure it was. So he was one of the beneficiaries of this. And he was very good with these educational pieces. Uh, wrote a lot of concertos as well, yeah, for young performers. Uh, so he was he was very talented. Uh, I mean, politically speaking, he was um, he was not resisting to the state at all. He would he would sail with the wind always. But at the same time, he didn't do anything absolutely terrible. Yeah, so he's kind of <laughs> um, still managed to uh, to gain some sort of respect. I remember him at the end of his life. You know, being being still very respective, not not seen as a as a villain like Krenica, for example. Yeah, so he was in the middle somewhere, but nevertheless, the second quartet. Uh, it's obvious that he he loves Prokofiev. Yeah, uh, Kabalevsky was for him Prokofiev was an idol. He imitated his music in every piece, uh, and did it very successfully. But it was a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, because during the forties, attitudes to Prokofiev changed. So so he had to kind of moderate the, his love for Prokofiev, I think, at some point. And here he moderates it with Tchaikovsky. <laughs> so it's a kind of combination. <laughs> so he is an eclectic, but I think this quartet is terrific. I really, it would be a great, you know, for, for lots of quartets to include this in their repertoire would be a very interesting thing to do. There's lots of interesting textures and, and it is quite, um, you know, very emotional at times. It has it has great tunes. Um, and so, so I, th- I think it's a very, very worthy piece again. Well, let's hear a bit of it then. This performed by the Stenhammer Quartet. The quartet was billed as representing the victory of the Soviet people, but although I enjoyed it, I have to say I struggled to find a strong narrative. How important was finding or even inventing a narrative on largely abstract instrumental music in determining who what was worthy of a prize? Yes, well, uh, as something that was written during the war and or after the war, you know, it automatically received this <laughs> war narrative. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, especially here, yeah, there are these funeral moments. I think both in the first and the second moment, and a bit in the third. Um, so uh, you know, th- that was supposed to represent, I think, the the, the tragedies and, and losses of of World War Two. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, the narrative was hugely important because, you know, uh, how would you explain what music is about to those on the committee, for example, who are not musicians? Yeah, and they say, oh, we don't understand anything about the music. But if you tell them that this is a piece, you know, about the victory of the Soviet uh, people in, in the war, then they will, will treat it, yeah, more positively. So uh, it was hugely important. I call them phantom narrative, phantom programs, yeah, because they are not programs necessarily written in the score, but they also surround the piece like a cloud. Um, and it, uh, these programs could have been created by musicologists or by critics or by the composers themselves. And uh, of course, you know, in all the debates uh, that I read through and all the minutes um, and transcripts of those meetings, these narratives are used all the time. They're a way of explaining music to people, as you said, who aren't the most musically literate, but are still on the committee in determining what wins. Yes, exactly. And and same, you know, in, in the musical press, uh, every piece had to have some kind of content, yeah, because it was all about content. Music couldn't be just form, because then it's formalist. So you had to have this sort of human, real-life content, and the only way to perceive it was through some kind of verbalization. 
I guess that specific to music has perhaps the most abstract form of art that was worthy or what that was considered for Stalin prizes, uh, paintings, uh, sculptures, this type of thing, it would be more obvious to a committee member what this was referring to than a piece of uh, instrumental music. Yes, exactly. And music, uh, they always struggled with. And sometimes they said, oh, let's just musicians, let's get musicians to decide it. We don't understand anything. <laughs> I mean, that's still the case, isn't it? Yeah, everyone... Uh, can talk about literature, everyone can talk about film. The moment you can't get to music, oh, you know, nobody knows it. <laughs> <laughs> a composer who increasingly noticeably failed to win uh, any Stalin prizes was Mitya Weinberg, despite the advocacy of his good friend Dmitry Shostakovich. Why was that? Yes, well, when we when we remember even the the first fact about him that he uh, he fled the Nazis, yeah, he fled into the Soviet Union. It was a kind of very tragic, yeah, flight from um, from fascism, and he, his family died in Poland. Um, I think that in itself, the fact that he was a kind of foreign, you know, would have set them apart. But he was also considered very talented and uh, his music was played for the committee even before he was nominated. It was, you know, so somebody was pulling strings for him. I think it could have been Shostakovich, could have been somebody else at that point. But um, I think he could have won maybe in the first uh, couple of years of the um, of the committee. But when his music was actually played, these these other voices, you know, the the, the voices of the demagogues who are saying that the people will reject that. We don't. The people don't need music like this. It's too dissonant. It's too gloomy. It's too much like Shostakovich. It's even worse than Shostakovich. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Weinberg didn't have a chance with that. And of course, later on, again, Shostakovich was trying to promote him. But later on, when the campaign. Um, euphemistically named yeah, against rootless cosmopolitanism, but it was essentially an anti-Jewish campaign. When that started, then Weinberg became a little bit of a persona non grata because most of the music that he wrote was actually on Jewish themes. Even though it was published, you know, it even was published during the campaign. They published his Symphonietta on Jewish theme in 1949. So there's no logic in how this develops. But you know, you you still have Galavanov, the uh, the conductor, saying, you know, why are we even considering this? It's, it's all on Jewish themes. Case of bad timing, perhaps, because Shostakovich's second piano trio, which does feature Jewish melodies, won in 1946. But by uh, the time that the Rhapsody on Moldavian themes is being considered, that is now n- not acceptable. Yes, um, I think, you know, in connection with Shostakovich trio, nobody even mentioned that there were Jewish themes in it. They just liked the themes. They thought it was like, you know, they were very exciting themes to tap their foot to, you know. (laughs) Uh, I don't think it was ever said. And the trio actually won the prize uh, in preference to the Eighth Symphony because it (laughs) it was more accessible to people. So that's an interesting story in itself. But yeah, for for Weinberg, uh, no, his his rhapsody on Moldavian themes, which again, yeah, is a slightly euphemistic title. <laughs> you know, Moldavian themes. Moldavia, Moldavia was one of the the fifteen republics, um, so it was legitimate folk music. Well, let's have an excerpt of Weinberg's rhapsody on Moldavian themes, performed by the Staatskapelle Dresden and Mikhail Yurovsky. music of Weinberg is now winning awards, including the gramophone and the Grammys, and has increasing popularity. Is his increasing popularity perhaps assisted by the fact that he was neglected by the Stalin Prize? The Stalin Prize is now a poison chalice. 
I think not so much even the story of the Stalin Prize, but but the story of his arrest. Yeah, because that that sort of captured people's imagination. He was arrested after <laughs> this piece, Rhapsody on Moldavian Themes, was played by Oestra. Um, uh, performed at the, the the conservatoire on that day, but amazingly, I mean, we shouldn't draw this connection, which seems to be so obvious that he was arrested for his music. Yeah, because his uh, his family was under uh, under observation, you know, for a long time, because he was married to the daughter of Solomon Mihoyles who uh, was a very the fam- the most famous Jew in the Soviet Union as yes, head of the Jewish anti-fascist committee who was uh, murdered by Stalin in February 1948 of course nobody uh, at that time it was described as a traffic accident but you know people knew uh, so um so he was, yeah. So he was arrested, and then the the what they wanted to charge him with was bourgeois nationalism or you know Jewish nationalism, I think. Uh, and uh, it was just before Stalin died. Uh, yeah, so he was literally arrested in February. Stalin died like two weeks later, and then uh, a, a few, um, a couple of months later, he was released, and Shostakovich fought for him. Uh, for his release. But that, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, together with the kind of music that he wrote, music about uh, concentration camps and, um, uh, you know, he also wrote a massive number of symphonies, massive number of of chamber music. And it's all now being discovered and people realize that some of this music is exceptionally good. Yeah, some of it possibly not so much, but, but yeah, he's a great discovery. Similarly to Miaskowski, you wrote a very large amount of music and now it's just the best bits that are now being uh, rediscovered and performed again. Yes, yes, I think I think that's the way to approach it. Yeah, we shouldn't think that everything is a masterpiece. <laughs> well, Weinberg failed to win any, Sergei Prokofiev was the all-time winner with six Stalin prizes, remarkably dying on the exact same day as Stalin. Can you give us a brief overview of Prokofiev's complex relationship with his homeland? As we know, uh, Prokofiev spent a long time abroad, yeah, from 1918 to roughly 1935, and then he decided to come back to the USSR, which in itself is, is was, I guess, quite unusual among musicians, not not so unusual generally uh, among the, the Soviet artistic intelligentsia. So, so, and when he returned, he really wanted to get stuck in and wrote some very ideologically correct words or he thought they were correct they actually turned out to be not <laughs> like his <laughs> cantata for the 20th anniversary yeah which uh, he thought well what's be- better to do than set some s- words by Stalin to music yeah, yeah uh, no. uh, through, through a megaphone no yeah uh, yeah I mean <laughs> really uh, he was very wrong about that but he, he also had some successes yeah like a toast to Stalin Zdravica yeah that that was quite popular so uh, still people re- referred to him as somebody who hadn't quite unpacked his suitcases. Yeah, he sort of came back, but he's still a Western composer. He, of course, was terribly sort of not politically correct in the way he spoke. Yeah, he, he kept saying, you know, that the, we're so far behind the West, you know, <laughs> we have to learn, and so on. So uh, you can see, you could see how, how different he was from the, the Soviet composers who already had the lingo. Uh, and uh, this is why in the first two years he couldn't win anything, which was uh, to the great consternation of the committee, because they realized that Prokofiev's music possibly was the best, you know, from everything that was presented there. And some of the things like Alexander Nevsky, yeah, was, was very much, you know, people's music. But uh, there was a resistance to that in the government, especially the Minister of, of, of Culture. Um, it was called Hrapchenko. So he was spoke against Prokofiev very strongly. But amazingly, he changed his mind about Prokofiev when he started working with him on War and Peace, yeah, which became this kind of national opera project. And Prokofiev just charmed him, I guess. You know, he, he sort of felt, I think, chuffed you know, to even know such great genius and <laughs> became supporting him, started to support him. Um, and that's how he, he received his prize for the Seventh Piano Sonata in 1940, which was written in 1943. 
That seems a remarkably avant-garde piece to win the Stalin Prize. Did it did it slip through the net, perhaps? Yes, absolutely. That's what it did. I think Prokofiev <laughs> was, couldn't understand himself why they chose this. Yeah, why they wouldn't award <laughs> Alexander Nevsky and they would award uh, the seventh piano sonata. But you know, several factors played played their role. You know, one one of them was the fact that it was time to give Prokofiev a prize, and this is what he released. Another uh, reason was that Svetoslav Richter uh, just played it and everyone was just astonished. Yeah, but there's some things like which are aesthetically so irresistible <laughs> Yeah, that you have yeah. to give them a prize. <laughs> and the way Richter performed it just captured their imagination. And they, they created this war narrative for it. Yeah, so because it was 1943, oh, you know, maybe it's the Stalingrad Sonata or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's it's uh, it's all you know quite gloomy at the start and then uh, and menacing you know and then at the, in the finale you have this uh, great um, uh, I don't know triumph of the Russian f- forces, uh, which of course is is I think ridiculous, but yeah, because the music tells you a different story. I think the music is connected to Prokofiev's images of devilish obsession, you know, and. Uh, possession um and uh, and also there are elements of jazz you know the, the kind of blue notes in it in, in the finale so uh there's stravinsky and influence in in it so it's it's uh, i think it's a sonata he wrote to play in on his u.s tour which never took place i think that's what what it was uh, it was done for but yeah, interesting story. Nevertheless, now that it's got the Stalin Prize, people get completely wrong ideas about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have an excerpt of Prokofiev's Seventh Piano Sonata performed by, of course, Sviatoslav Richter. Talk there about the performance of Sviatoslav Richter and in uh, the awarding of the prize for the seventh piano sonata. How much influence did performance themselves have on who was considered for awards? Well, there were, of course, performers uh, on the committee, um, such as Alexander Goldenweiser, for example, who um, he was a composer as well, or he wanted to be considered a composer. Uh, so, so he pr- he played a very important role. He, I think, discussed almost everything uh, that there was <laughs> to participated always in every discussion uh, so yeah so <clears throat> uh, I guess performers performers um, he, he also proposed that the performers would be actually awarded uh, the instrumentalists in particular because um, the originally prizes went straight to singers of the Bolshoi theater because Stalin was personally interested in the singers of the Bolshoi theater. So they were always very well served by the prize. But instrumentalists actually could receive only one prize uh, in their lifetime because it uh, it didn't feel to them like it was like a new work. You know, if you pre- prepared a new program, you know, no matter how many times, for example, you know, Richter would play, he would only be eligible for one, one prize, yeah, a single prize. Prokofiev's last win was for his Seventh Symphony, awarded after both Prokofiev and Stalin had died. Could this be viewed as a sort of lifetime achievement award, so beloved of award ceremonies these days? Yes, it was the the ending of a very long saga uh, over Prokofiev's Seventh Symphony. They discussed it three times, I think, in the committee, when Prokofiev was still alive. Mm. And every time, uh, amazingly, you know, th- there was some resistance to giving him a prize. And uh, it, it's quite extraordinary because the symphony is quite innocuous um, when you compare it even, you know, to the Seventh Sonata. It's a very lyrical style. And I think Prokofiev was slightly embarrassed, the simplicity uh, that, that 
uh, he perpetrated that, that he actually sort of suggested that it was for children or for young people or something like that. So, uh, and nevertheless, there, there were detractors of Prokofiev at that point. This is already yeah after he had been denounced as a formalist. And he had a particular hard time um, because he, I guess, didn't understand the brief properly. Couldn't really see how he could have done it wrongly because he really thought he was a composer for the people. Yeah, he created these amazing melodies. He thought he was doing the right thing. So, uh, so he took it very badly. So it took him a long time and a lot of help from his friends to get rehabilitated and receive another prize for, for his cantata or oratorio rather uh, on guard for peace. So, and the, the seventh symphony, you know, he was already lying, um, basically on his deathbed. He was he was very sick man and uh, and yet they still couldn't get it through there was this resistance to to the to the quality of the grotesque as they called it which is kind of this very sharp yeah scherzo type music that prokofiev was of course famous for and is famous for but um it was okay during the war because you could also say well these are the nazis yeah but but here yeah uh, in in these years uh, there was something that that some people perceived was mocking. You know, who what what is this music mocking? Yeah, and you know that's the, the nature of Prokofiev style. It always mocks everything. Yeah, so he <laughs> uh, couldn't really d d do anything. So that's why uh, after Prokofiev died, uh, the first Lenin Prize uh, was given to to the symphony because they remembered it as a, as a great injustice done to this great artist. Well, let's have an excerpt of the Seventh Symphony performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Valery Gergiev. Undoubtedly, the most discussed composer of this period is Dmitry Shostakovich, who was accused of model instead of music by possibly Stalin himself after his opera Lady Macbeth of Mazensk in 1936. Could his 1941 win for his piano quintet be viewed as rehabilitation by the Soviet state? He was sort of re rehabilitated by, uh, by his Fifth Symphony already, yeah, in 1937, even though it wasn't ever considered as complete yeah because the fifth symphony was still controversial uh if you look at all the reviews but uh yeah indeed the quintet was suddenly this piece that just everyone loved everyone on the committee truly truly loved it it was lucky i guess you know that it was also uh, very well played and played several times in a row so that actually sort of familiarized the ears with, with it uh, and yeah, and it was seen as a very sunny piece, uh, although, you know, today we might not necessarily hear it like this. And the ending is quite ambivalent in a sense, you know, it's, uh, it's not the big triumph. But nevertheless, you know, it, it was just, I suppose, exceptionally fortunate also to, to be seen as this uh, socialist realist piece, even though it's basically a piece of musical neoclassicism. Okay, well, let's have an excerpt from the Shostakovich Piano Quintet performed by the Artemis Quartet and Elizabeth Leonskaya.
Shostakovich was on the panel for the Stardom Prize for some years and often behaved, behaved quite deviously on it. Can you give some highlights from his time on the panel? Uh, yes, that, that's a very interesting lens to look at Shostakovich through the prism of, of, of the Stalin Prize Committee transcripts because he comes into it really full of ideas that he has to criticize everything. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so he, he actually speaks his mind, you know, I like this, I don't like this, this is rubbish, you know, and so on. He is not a really committee man at all. <laughs> uh, but but he yeah he speaks his mind and later on of course he's removed from the committee yeah in 1948 again as as he is declared as formalist and then he's reinstated on the committee and when he comes back it's a very different man you know he's completely cynical basically just tries to use the committee to promote his friends totally cynical way uh, still doesn't have the admin yeah the admin know how of how to actually achieve this. But he certainly uses it to vent his frustration. You know, he tells everyone off. He says, you know, we, we should give Svirid of the prize. We should give Weinberg the prize. We should give uh, Levitin the prize, which are all kind of either his students or disciples. And sometimes would fight for them, even though he is the only vote. Yeah, so then I can think one bit piece. Yeah, re re received one vote, which was his. Uh, and uh, would write letters knowing that it's pointless, but just basically just venting. Yeah, I think. But that, the, so that, that is quite interesting to see him as actually not, not a shy man or not a man of kind of was withdrawing from the, all these debates. But on the contrary, somebody who tries to fight, even in a slightly sort of awkward way, I guess. Would it be fair to say that the quality of compositions, both by Shostakovich and others, that ended up winning the Stalin Prize declined over the years that it was awarded? And why would that be? You know, it's very hard to say. Uh, you know, Song of the Forests, I know that that's what you mean, yeah, which was given the prize post-1948, which was his rehabilitation prize. Uh, I think it's 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 still um, a, a great work, you know. It, it's very well done. It's The problem is it's in this very official genre of an oratorio. But as, as an example of that genre, it's probably, you know, the very top. So uh, I don't think Shostakovich was necessarily kind of embarrassed by the quality of it. I think he was embarrassed by the fact that he he had to write this, you know, essentially for Stalin's birthday, uh, and using yeah as a theme uh, Stalin's reforestation plan. Yeah, actually, I, sp I suppose it's it's very good now. It's an ecological yeah thing. <laughs> it's a green plan. Yeah, yeah. was post-war. You know, so it was sort of putting all these trees down. So, um, so it, I don't think it's so much the quality, but it's the choice of works that they they now make. Yeah, so they would they would argue forever about his tenth symphony. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, they want to award his con party cantata or something, which indeed you know he was embarrassed by, and he said, "Oh, please, please don't give me the prize for this." And yet at the same time, yeah, his preludes and fugues, fugues are considered, which is a very different kettle of fish. So, so it, it's complicated what, what, what happens with Shostakovich, but certainly, mm, you know, things are still remain difficult for him in this period. And of course, the, wor the, the, the works that he actually writing in that period between 48 and 53, he doesn't show to anyone. Yeah, such as a violin concerto. Well, let's have an excerpt so we can judge for ourselves the quality of the Song of the Forests, performed by Alexei Tanovitsky, Konstantin Andreev, the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra, the Estonian Chonce Choir, Narva Boys Choir, conducted by Pavel Yevi. <laughs>
1979, Solomon Volkov's testimony was published, arguing that Trostakovich expressed anti-Soviet sentiments through his music and remains controversial to this day. Could it be argued that testimony has legitimised Shostakovich as a dissident in the West? Yes, I have to say that the testimony produces this very, very uh, seismic shift in the Western reception of Shostakovich, because before that he was considered a kind of not very interesting party composer. You know, people were lo- looking down at, uh, on him. And suddenly he becomes this dissident. I mean, it's a pity that the, the shift was produced by the book, which purports to be what it is not. It's not a Shostakovich memoir. That has been proven. That's not what Shostakovich wanted to read you, uh, you to read as his memoir. Yeah, it's a, it's a collection of stories, uh, some stemming probably from Shostakovich, some from his friends, some of his old interviews, everything cobbled together. So it's, it's uh, not really, I think, the tone of voice that he would like you to hear. But somehow this tone of voice became Shostakovich voice, you know, and the, the image that this book portrays became the image of Shostakovich. And lots of us, you know, have been sort of fighting against it uh, up to an extent, because, of course, to an extent, there are true things in it which have been corroborated by other things like the memoirs that Elizabeth Wilson published. But these stories, yeah, that that, that circulate and and that are partially found in this book, these stories belong to the genre of biker. Yeah, it's, it's a story post-vodka yeah, storytelling, <laughs> which Russian musicians of then and of now yeah, always indulged in. And these stories, including the stories told by Shostakovich, might have some truth in them, might have 20% of truth, might have 0% of truth, might have 80% of truth. I've compared various stories in my book, actually, uh, about a certain event, and, and they're completely different, you know, they're, they're, they're different, very significant details. So you can never trust these bikers, you know, you, you, you can never trust them completely. You can just get the flavor of the times from them, especially what Rostropovich says, you know, <laughs> never believe him. So anyway, yes, uh, it certainly, you know, legitimized Shostakovich as a dissident, and he, he, of course, was much more complex figure than that. It presents an easy narrative that uh, the truth is actually a lot more complex. A lot more complex, yeah, because he was also a member of the establishment. I mean, he was a deputy of the Supreme Soviet. He had a very privileged existence, extremely privileged, actually, throughout his life, despite, you know, being very harshly criticized. He he had, you know, was materially insulated uh, at almost every point, you know, with, with a very few exceptions. Uh, and... Uh, of course, all his music was always performed, you know, unlike Prokofiev's music. So he was very fortunate in, in that respect as well. Um, and even the works that um, yeah, were banned at some point, such as Lady Macbeth and, and The Nose, you know, wasn't played for a long time, the Fourth Symphony, they all came back. So he lived long enough. So he was, again, more fortunate than Prokofiev, who just died on the same death as that, uh, the day as Stalin. So he had no chance to experience the, the period of reprieve and rehabilitation and freedom. So, uh, yeah, so Shostakovich was both yeah, the, the beneficiary of the system a, a, in a huge way. He could write to the government to say, you know, I need this, I need that, I need the flattened Moscow, I need the Dacha, you know. Uh, my Stalin prizes are not enough to pay for this all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and at the same time, you know, a, a great pain of, of compromise and, uh, of course, uh, you know, constantly having this, this sort of Damocles, you know, hanging over him that he might be denounced again, yeah, because it, this is, there's always, he, he was denounced twice. Again, nobody was denounced twice. So, so he also he got the most of the grief and, and also most of the praise. In conclusion, how do you feel the Stalin Prize continues to influence how we view these composers, for good and bad? Well, I don't think it, it has such a great influence. First of all, not, not many people know about it, unless they read my book. And of course, more people <laughs> should read my book. Um, and it, it is important. I think it, it gives you a very interesting perspective on the whole history of Soviet music. But I think the, these days, you know, when people find out, or oh, something got the Stalin Prize, and they start thinking, why would that be? So just my warning is don't, don't, don't you know, just make a simple decision that this is because Stalin liked it. Yeah, this is what I was trying to argue against in my book. It's not like he just pulls the prize out of his, you know, white trousers and uh, <laughs> out of his pocket and, and gives them. That That's not what happened. Yeah, it was very much a collective decision, apart from 
very few cases when he really had uh, had an, uh, a very personal influence it was it was a collective decision very often it was it was based on on aesthetic grounds rather than political grounds you know, the, the balance was was shifting all the time so in order to understand why this this or that work has a stalin prize you really need to go into the nitty-gritty you know what year was that what was the situation who was supporting this person and so on and so forth. So it, it's a complicated story, but I don't think uh, any work should be, uh, you know, thought of as particularly good or particularly bad just by virtue of having a Stalin Prize. Yeah. Is there a lesson, perhaps all awards for artistic endeavours, that they must try and resist the urge to become too mm. political? Well, you know, it's not possible. Uh, <laughs> every every jury that I've sat on uh, always has the element of politics, and I think that that's what we know that that's going to be there. Because it's just uh, otherwise it it is it if we just you know go with the, what we think as the absolute quality you might end up awarding the same person, yeah it, it almost happened in the Stalin Prize Committee when they started awarding Prokofiev every year because the quality was so high, but you know other people also need to be rewarded you need to somehow sort of spread the the, the goods. Uh, around, so I, I don't think we can get rid of politics, but uh, it's uh, it's so that we don't completely throw uh, <laughs> throw our yeah. you know ideas of 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 what is good uh, you know musically or artistically, so that we don't forget them completely, you know, don't go against our sort of our, I don't know artistic conscience consciences. <laughs> Perhaps um, the lesson is not to try and be unbiased, but to be aware, be aware of our own biases. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Marina. Should you wish to further explore this fascinating period of cultural history, then Marina's book, Stalin's Music Prize, Soviet Culture and Politics, is available in our Presto bookstore. What are you currently working on, Marina? Uh, well, currently I'm on the last stages of preparing a manuscript for publication and it's on Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Uh, I've written it together with my husband, Jonathan Walker. Uh, and it's basically an attempt to look at this very controversial work, yeah, very famous work from different perspectives and to say something maybe slightly new about it, which is very difficult, but I think we've managed maybe to create some new arguments. So I very much you know, wait for this moment when it's going to be published and people will stop asking me questions questions about the Fifth Symphony. <laughs> well, I've very much enjoyed uh, your book on the Stalin Prize, so I eagerly await your book on the Fifth Symphony. Uh, thank you very much again. Thanks to my producer, Matt Groom, and thanks to you for listening. 